Well, it's not a it's not a Pastor Ronald sermon without a movie quote, um, and I want to share uh, a scene from one of my favorite movies, um, The Lord of the Rings. Um, just absolutely love The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I own The Lord of the Rings. I own the extended edition of The Lord of the Rings. It's about 10 and 11 hours of movies. I just love everything about uh, those movies, what they represent, the metaphors that J.R.R. Tolkien's trying to communicate to folks. Uh, there's a powerful scene in the movie close to, close to the end. The entire movie um, hinges around the story of, of two little hobbits, uh, these little four-foot creatures um, by the name of Sam and Frodo. Frodo's kind of the lead character of the movie, and he's been tasked with this burdensome responsibility of taking the one ring, this, this symbolic representation of, of sin and evil, and, and destroying it. This, this, this ring has been created in this place called Mount Doom, and, and Frodo has to journey from the shy this this beautiful little place into just uh, uh, places far from the Shire and eventually wind up in this mountain called Mount Doom and destroy this ring. Along the way, uh, Sam and Frodo pick up uh, a friend, kind of, a tour guide, kind of, uh, a creature by the name of Golem. Uh, Golem used to be a hobbit like Sam and Frodo, but, but he gave in to the power of the ring. So, so you, you see how sin and corruption works itself out through him. Well, Golem functions as their guide, and, and he, he knows the way to Mount Doom. And um, when they're just about to get to Mount Doom, they climb this other mountain facing Mount Doom, and, and they're there. They're facing the gates, the black gate. Uh, to get to Mount Doom, the evil uh, character of the franchise, this all-seeing evil eye called Sauron, he's figured out a strategy. He said, hey, I'm going to create an army of tens of thousands of battle-hungry orcs, and I'm going to place them behind this impenetrable steel gate called the Black Gate. And to get to Mount Doom, you have to journey through this impenetrable fortress that contains tens of thousands of orcs. Well, Frodo and Sam have no idea this is where they're going. They show up, they see the Black Gate, and they see the tens of thousands of orcs. And you have two little four-foot hobbits. How are they going to manage themselves, their way into um, uh, the black, uh, the, 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 the uh, mountain of death? Well, in a display of courage and faith and trust, Sam and Frodo look at each other and they say, let's go. And they're about to t- take a step out of their concealed area. And just in time, Golem, their tour guide, brings them back and says, no, 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 masters, it's too dangerous. And well, duh, it's too dangerous. But then Golem says this, I know another way. I know a secret way. And Sam and Frodo look at each other and go, well, why didn't you tell us? To which Golem replies, because you didn't ask. You didn't ask. You didn't ask. Hmm. We are in a 
yearly emphasis. Um, we've been doing this for some time now called Summer Bible Jam. And, and over the past several years, we've, we've uh, tried to emphasize the importance of Bible reading and, and try to teach and, and, and look at different means to, to connect with the, uh, the Lord through his word and understand what the story of scripture is and, and understand how to read the Bible, how to apply it for our lives. Uh, but this year, um, we felt led to do something uh, different. Pastor Keith uh, felt led in particular to change the emphasis from summer Bible jam to summer prayer jam. And we've been looking at this second component of the Christian faith uh, that is uh, necessary, integral, important, foundational for the development of the faith called prayer. And so why? Why prayer? Here's a helpful quote uh, that Keith shared with us a couple weeks ago from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the thing that keeps one going in the Christian life is prayer communion and fellowship with God. It is something which is absolutely essential. I would go further and say that the Christian life is really impossible without it because prayer is communion with God. Our prayer life reflects the quality of our communion with him. Lloyd-Jones sees prayer as the greatest indicator of one's spiritual health and the ultimate test of man's true spiritual condition. So when we read the Bible, we learn about God. But when we pray, we experience something different. We we enjoy him on a personal level. Imagine receiving the most detailed text message from someone you care about. Maybe this person's serving in the military, he's been uh, overseas for a number of years, maybe it's a relative that you miss, maybe it's someone that's just vacationing, someone that you have not had contact with for, for a long time. And this person sends you a detailed text message of what their experience is like, of what they're feeling, of, of what they're um, um, missing about you, of the interactions that they hope to have with you, uh, about their day, about what they had for lunch, about um, what the next couple days for them look like. And you get this massive wall of text. Reading the Bible is kind of like that. Th- that content can lead us to a certain level of relationship. But imagine, imagine interacting with that same person by holding their hand, by embracing them, by having a conversation with them, by being next to them. This is why prayer is so important. Tim Keller would say, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves, Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Underline that in your outline if you don't have it underlined. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God. The way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to know and be in life. That's a a powerful, helpful statement. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. So don't don't get the wrong impression. We're we're not pitting prayer against scripture reading. We're, We're not even suggesting that one is better than the other. 
What we're suggesting is that the Christian life is lived on these two planes. You have to know about God through what he's revealed about himself in the Bible. But you have to experience his nearness in prayer. I'm also not suggesting that you don't experience God's nearness while you're reading the Bible. But these two things are necessary for the Christian life. So our emphasis this summer is we want to promote the idea of prayer. What it accomplishes, what it does, how to do it. And so to that end, Pastor Keith began um, a couple weeks ago with a sermon entitled, Everyone Needs a Prayer Closet. By design, we are limited creatures. In every sphere of our existence, whether it's our mental capacity, our emotional capacity, our physical capacity, our our intellectual capacity, our relational capacity, even even our capacity to make moral judgments. If if you've ever found yourself in a position in life where where you show up to some situation, some context, and, and you're either asked to render judgment on is that right or is that wrong, and have you ever been stumped? If that's what I'm talking about. We're limited in, even in our capacity to make absolute moral claims about things. Yet prayer is the one activity that gives us access to God's infinite wisdom, power, and resources. Not just to supplement those limitations, but to overtake them. Prayer is our means where God replaces our weaknesses with his strength. This is why it's so crucial. This is why Pastor Keith began with his first sermon, Everyone Needs a Prayer Closet. Last week, Keith preached on the idea that pray because life is more than what meets the eye. And we were introduced to the the spirit world, right? We were introduced to the idea that there is stuff happening that you and I can't see. We were introduced to Daniel's experience and, and, and that somehow Daniel is praying and, and, and it's like his head boop, sticks into and he's able to see that this spiritual dimension of angelic beings and demonic powers and all, this thing, all these things. And, and somehow his prayers ha- have some sort of ability to interact and, and, to, and to manage and to influence the spiritual realm. And what I wanted to do this morning is to, is to narrow that idea a little bit more. To look at the, one of the aspects of how our prayer affects unseen realities. And so we've been using this metaphor of building a prayer closet. Building a prayer closet. And this morning I wanted to, to play the role of architect. So as, you, as, you've, as you've looked at the blueprints of your prayer closet, I, I want you to consider... To add windows to your prayer closet. Now that, that's odd. You, you don't typically add windows to a closet. But just, just b- bear with me. I, I would like for you to consider to installing windows in your closet. And, and these windows will, will help focus your prayers in a specific direction. The, these windows will be places where you'll be able to come to and pray to God and, and, and speak to God and engage with God in specific ways. So a closet typically has four walls. So think of it this way. You're going to install four windows. There's a little prayer acronym there that's, that's been helpful. Um, we printed out a prayer outline as well. That's a version of this as well. 
Um, but the idea is the ACTS acronym. A stands for adoration, C stands for confession, T stands for thanksgiving, and S stands for supplication. So in your closet, consider adding windows in each direction. And as you come to the window of adoration, your prayers are going to sound a certain way. You're going to speak about the greatness of God. You're going to give him glory for who he is. You're going to praise him for what he's done. As you come to the window of confession, you're going to do what we did this morning when we sang that beautiful song. Lord, we come now as sinners, confessing, extending ourselves to receive the mercy of God. You might want to switch over to the window of thanksgiving and pray in that sense. It's related to the window of adoration, but it's not the same thing. You, you extend gratitude to the Lord. You thank him for what he's done in your life. But there's one window I want to talk about this morning. And it's the window of supplication. What does supplication mean? It just means to intercede for oneself or for others. To pray to God for myself or to pray to God for others. Before I continue, why don't we do just that and pray? Father, we ask that through your spirit, you would give us understanding, Lord, but above that, that our hearts would change as we respond to your truth. Guide us, O Lord. Speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, how can we affect the spirit dimension? How, 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 how does our prayers interact or how do our prayers interact with what's happening in the unseen unseen realm and what i was led to do this morning is to is to make a case for biblical intercession for the idea that the way this looks or the way this is done you affect the unseen realities by interceding by praying for others by praying for yourself the theological dictionary on myself in the office uh, defines inter- intercession as the act of intervening or mediating between different parties particularly the act of praying to god on behalf of another person so this morning you are receiving a tool you are receiving a a a, a a direction to pray in that, that will contain language primarily towards others and not towards yourself. The idea of intercession, about praying for others, praying on behalf of others. And this is a pattern that we've seen all throughout Scripture. Even in the earliest books in Genesis chapter 18... We have the story of the Lord visiting Abraham to let them know that at the ripe old age of 100, he's going to be a daddy. And tucked away at the end of this chapter, um, oh, by the way, there's this place called Sodom and Gomorrah that's very, very sinful and very, very bad. And the Lord um, is just, well, going to render judgment and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is some of the interaction that takes place between Abraham and God in that setting. Verse 22 says... So the men, these two angelic beings that had visited Abraham, turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, in other words, he prayed, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of the five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. Do you see what Abraham is doing? He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now jump down to Genesis chapter 19, verses 27 through 29. God does in fact destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but not without doing this first. Verse 27, Genesis 19. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That place he was praying at. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. If you know the story, God saves. He sends these two angels to speak to Lot and his family to come out. And in fact, Lot and his wife and his two daughters are saved. His wife looks back, turns into a pillar of dust. But nonetheless, Abraham prayed. And so, as you read this account... Let me ask you this question. Who saved Lot and his family? Did God save Lot and his family? Or was it Abraham's prayer that saved Lot and his family? Let's look at another example of biblical intercession. Exodus chapter 32. You should be very familiar with this story. God has rescued the people of Egypt, of Israel from Egypt. He has shown himself powerful over all the, the Egyptian false gods. He has split a sea for them to walk through. He has destroyed an entire army behind them. He has appeared to them in a cloud of fire and a cloud of, uh, of, of dust. He's visibly shown himself to some capacity. He's called Moses to come up to the mount and, and give him the Ten Commandments. And the people, well, they're impatient. So verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Underline this verse. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So question. Was Israel spared of God's righteous judgment because God is merciful? Or because Moses prayed that God would show them mercy? Let's look at another example. 1 Samuel chapter 7. People of Israel have repeatedly shown their pattern to bow before anything that looks like anything. They're Idolatry is just repetitive. It continues. They are, they're, they're presently struggling with the Philistines. The Philistines have taken the ark from them. The ark has been returned. And um, this incredible man by the name of Samuel shows up. And he does this for them. First Samuel chapter 7. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it over the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. So Israel's not gathered at Mizpah ready for battle. They're gathered, in a, they're gathered for church. Right? They've got their church clothes on. They, they left the sword and shield back in the closet somewhere. You know, kids are running around. You know, children's ministry. They're, they're, they're doing a, a reverent service to give themselves over to the Lord. To confess their sins. They're not ready for battle. Philistines get word of that. Oh, now's a great chance to go in there and slaughter them all. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. I ask you again. When was Israel's salvation from the incoming attack of the Philistines secured? 
When was Israel's salvation from the incoming attack of the Philistines secured? Before Samuel's prayer or after Samuel's prayer? Episodes like this are all over the Old Testament. Um, We're going to skip the Daniel intercession. You could look at the prophet Amos. You could look at the life of David. This type of of activity in the Bible, it's just all over the place. Why am I presenting this? Prayer matters. Our prayers for other people mean something. They do something. When you intercede on behalf of others, you're not speaking words into the air. You're doing something, something that matters, something that may alter the, 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 the condition of the person that you are praying for. I'm getting way ahead of myself. But why should we pray? John Frame helped me out this week a lot. In the systematic theology, he writes, why should we pray? He said, people often ask this question out of a concern for the sovereignty of God. There it is. So some of you theologian types are wondering, well, if God has ordained everything, how does this function? That's the question I have. And I found this quote. If God is in control of everything, then what difference can our prayers make? After all, God already knows and has planned what he will do. We can't change his eternal plan. So why should we bother to pray? First, because God commands it in Scripture. Do you need more reasons after that? No, right? Because mom and dad, why should I do that? Because I said so, right? So why should we pray? Because God said so. Even if we don't understand how prayer and God's sovereignty work together, we should pray simply because our Heavenly Father wants us to. Second, and this is what we've been trying to develop this summer, prayer is a means of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. In Luke 11, 9-13, Jesus says that prayer is like a child's going to his earthly father. The child wants something and the father is eager to give. But the father does not give until the child asks. Moms and dads in the room, do, do you understand that? But even more than just giving... The Father wants a relationship with the Son. Third, if our prayers could not change anything, then the relationship would be hollow. But, prayer changes things. Or to put it more theologically, God ordains prayer as a means to change history. There are things that happen because of prayer and things that do not happen because of no prayer. There are things in life that will happen because you prayed and there are things in life that will not happen because you didn't pray. Now let's tie both of those ideas together. If intercession is praying for others is lifting up the needs and lives of others. And if prayer changes things, if prayer affects things, and if lack of prayer 
prevents from things being changed. How do those two ideas connect? When we pray for people, when we intercede for people, things in people's lives will change. So why should you pray? Because it matters. This should be so encouraging to you this summer. As you're building your prayer closet, it's encouraging to know that that what you do in there matters. You're you're not just having a self-therapy session in there. That's not what you're doing. You're not just screaming into the walls and getting stuff off your chest. When you pray for other people, you you are, are potentially changing the outcome of people's lives. You are praying down blessings on people's needs. We have to develop that idea and add some boundaries. We'll get there. But I'm going to take a cue from Pastor Keith. We're trying to push you to do things. If you're the type of person that's more concerned about how theologically accurate what I have said is, and you are not praying for other people, that's a problem. I'll say that again. If you're the type of person who's more concerned about the theological intricacies of what I've said, but you don't pray for other people, that's a problem. You have the wrong priorities. Intercession matters. It changes people's circumstances. And it's so encouraging. It should be encouraging. This should lead you into your prayer closet to, to, to pray for other people because you expect that, that your prayers could, could do something in other people's lives. Now, about those boundaries. There's basically three quick boundaries. The, the, the problem with preaching is you can't preach about everything all the time. Right, so I'm just, I'm just hoping that, that there's been foundations laid. And so I'm going I'm to lead you to a preaching series on prayer that Pastor Keith uh, led, I think at the beginning of the year, called A Throne of Grace. And if, if you have questions on, on, on some of this, go there and watch those four sermons and avail yourself of that. But, but I, I didn't want just, just want to skip this because this is also important. There are some boundaries to that. To that idea of when we pray for other people, things change in their lives. There are some boundaries. Let's, let's, let's install a boundary at the front end of that. And those boundaries, by the way, are Trinitarian. The first boundary is, is our prayers come only through Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Men, the man Christ Jesus. It should amaze you to no end to know that right now, as you're sitting in this church... That earlier this, this, this morning, as you were sleeping in your bed, Jesus Christ was standing next to his Father interceding for you. He was praying for you. He is the one mediator between God and man. Our, our prayers come through him. Our prayers are only uh, um, heard by God because of what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. 
Christ didn't just forgive our sins and atone for our sins on the cross. He, he made a way for us to come to the Father. He reconciled us to the Father. He adopted us into the royal family. We are now sons and daughters of the King. And sons and daughters have a privilege that other people don't do. My children can come into my bed at three in the morning and wake me up with a need. Why? Because they're my children. Christ has secured that type of access for you. You can come into the celestial courtroom of God at three in the morning. And not that he sleeps, but wake up the king. You have that access through and in Christ. Jesus himself would say, what you ask in my name, this I will do. John 14, John 16, 23, he would say, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. By the way, this is why we add that phrase, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is why you should add that phrase, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Not, not because it's, it's like, a, like a superstitious thing or it's like a, like a, like a weird type of like magical chant type thing. No, it's, it's an affirmation that our prayers are only heard through allegiance, submission, and faith in Jesus Christ and his work. That's what that, so on the front end of that boundary of our prayers change people's lives, that's the entryway to them. Our prayers are only heard through Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross. On the tail end of that boundary is the will of the Father. So our prayers fall in line with the will of the fathers. Our prayers are heard and they change things when they fall in line with the will of the father. First John 5, 14 through 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, and if we know that he hears us, even in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Jesus would teach his disciples to pray when they asked him, how do we pray? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when you pray, you have an understanding that what you're praying for must fall in line with the will of God. Now, I'm I'm, going to... Resist the urge of explaining that because I'm going to explain that later on. So let me just to stop talking to myself and keep preaching. And then the, the third element of, of, of the Trinitarian work is the Spirit's work. So we have access to the courtroom of grace. We can come before God to pray because of what Jesus has done. Our prayers are heard if they fall in line with the will of the Father. But the Spirit plays a role as well. Romans chapter 8 would teach that the, 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 the Spirit of God translates our prayers even when we don't know how we ought to pray even when the words that come out of our mouth are not the words that should come out of our mouth the spirit intercedes he says i got it i got it i know what you want i know what you need i'm going to take this to the father and so this morning we've been looking at prayer closet heroes right We've been looking at at individuals in the Bible that that we want to learn something from how they prayed, what they prayed, where they prayed. And we're looking at the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah. And we're actually not going to go to 1 Kings 
We're going to go to the book of James, chapter 5, verse 13. Let me read this for you. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. So three phrases in that text that I want us to look at together and build our prayer closets from. So the first is in verse 17, where it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Um, In sports, there's this phenomenon called trying to find out who the goat is. The GOAT. Conversations about GOATs. GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. That's what GOAT means. When you talk about like basketball, you know, Michael Jordan's the GOAT. No, no, no. LeBron James is the GOAT. No, no, no. Kobe Bryant's the GOAT. Talk about football, you know, who's the GOAT? Uh, Tom Brady's the GOAT. No, no, no. Uh, uh, Drew Brees is the GOAT. No, no, no. Any sport, there's conversations about GOAT. Who's the greatest of all time? And that phrase... That phrase bothers me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Well, let's, let's examine Elijah's resume. Uh, Elijah has a case for being the prophetic goat. Like, he can make a strong case for being the greatest of all time prophet. I mean, he's got, he's got some pretty, pretty big resistance. I mean, he's got Moses, but then you're like, well, was Moses really a prophet? Was, was, was a prophet? Yeah. Um, then you got John the Baptist way in the New Testament. And, and, you know, Jesus did say after all that John the Baptist, no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. So, so you, you've got that, but, but we, we have no really recorded miracles of John the Baptist. Like we really know what he did. And so, and so, but then you have Elijah. So, so let's, let's examine Elijah's goat accomplishments. We meet, we meet Elijah in 1 Kings 17, and this is what the dude does. He predicts drought, prays for it, drought happens for three years. Later on in that chapter, he um, meets this uh, widow and her son and um, gives her like infinite food, like, like just makes her food continue to multiply until she has food that she don't know what to do with. So he can create food. Then her, that widow's son dies. Oh, man. And guess what Elijah does? He raises the widow's son from the dead. So, he can predict droughts, can control the weather. Thor has nothing on this guy. He can create food, right? So, you don't need to go to Walmart, just go to Elijah. And he can raise people from the dead. And then... He does something really incredible. First Kings 19, we have that incredible story of, of um, Elijah 
going up against the 950 prophets of the false god Baal. And, and it, it was, it was a, 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 a one-on-many, a mono-on-many. On it wasn't a one-on-one. It was just a one prophet against 950. And what does Elijah do? He literally prays down fire from heaven. He's got millions of people watching this. The entire people, the entire nation of Israel is, is out there. These two mountains and Elijah's mocking them and he prays. So that's this guy's resume. That's what he can do. Oh, by the way, then he prayed for rain and it rained. So he's got control of nature. He's got control of food. He can raise people from the dead. And he can rain fire down from heaven. Obviously, God's doing this in the background, but, but you get my point. How, how many of you have done any of those things this week? But according to the apostle... Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You see, Elijah also did something. At the end of all these miracles, after being used by God to perform all these incredible acts, there's one person that wasn't impressed. There's one person that was angry at him. Jezebel. She wasn't happy that she lost all her prophets. So she threatened Elijah to have him killed. Mind you, he could control the weather. He could call a lightning bolt down on her. He could create food so he could offer everyone free food and people would protect him. He could raise people from the dead. So could he raise himself from the dead? I don't know, but he's got that power. And he can rain down fire. And what does Elijah do in the face of this one angry woman who wants to kill him? You remember what he did? He ran away. This prophet of God runs away in fear. Hides himself in a cave. And turns to God and says, help Do you see now the, the apostles' wisdom? We have the nature of Elijah. Elijah is, in fact, a man with a nature like our ours. Like ours. And that, that, that leads us to, to the first lesson. Is we are characterized by spiritual amnesia. We forget that God has answered prayers. We forget that God has answers prayer. We're just like Elijah. God has worked in our lives. God has done things for us and through us. But we forget. Spiritual amnesia is gone. And and, and when something shows up, that looks like something God has already dealt with before in the past, what do we do? Do do we show the resilience and faith we showed in the past? If you're like me, you look like Elijah. Oh God. This is encouraging, by the way. This is meant to encourage you as you build your prayer closet. 
This is, this is one of the biggest temptations that will keep you from the prayer closet. This is why maybe you don't go into your prayer closet. Because you've been led to believe that prayers are not heard. That prayers don't change anything. That God has in fact not done all the things he clearly has done for you. And so we walk around with spiritual amnesia, forgetting how God has dealt with us in the past, and that prevents us from walking into our prayer closet. Second phrase, verse 17 and verse 18. The Apostle James says that Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. And verse 18, then he prayed again. So let me, let me read this account for you quickly. 1 Kings 18. This is what James is referring to. Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Go celebrate, dude. It's going to rain, man. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. That's his prayer closet. He goes up to his prayer closet by himself to the top of the mountain. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. What is Elijah praying for? He's praying for rain. He's praying for the end of the drought. Elijah's been told by God that the drought is going to end. I find that interesting. That God has spoken about this reality happening, yet Elijah still has to pray. Not once. Not twice. Not three times. Seven times. I'm also encouraged by the fact that each of those times, Elijah is curious. He's he's concerned. Verse 45, And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So prayer lesson number two, persistence in prayer produces fruit. Persistence in prayer produces fruit. James did tell us earlier that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Now now stop for just a moment and be brutally honest with the Lord. And ask yourself, at what point during those seven prayers, praying for rain, would you have wondered... Would this thought had come into your mind? Is, is, is this doing anything? Does this, does this matter? Why is it not working? Prayer number two, maybe? Maybe you started prayer number one with faith. Hey, servant, go see if it's raining. No. Hmm. Or, or prayer number four, maybe. Maybe you made it four prayers in and, hey, servant, is it raining? No. At, at what point do you think that, that, that doubt and fear and anger and, and, and entitlement pop into your mind? 
This is another temptation you will face in the prayer closet. It's not working. Nothing's happening. I pray and I pray and nothing. Persistence in prayer may change things, but it will always produce fruit. We see a, a, a version of, of this um, in a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm trying to find really accurate words. Don't deprive yourself of the blessing that's obtained by persistent prayer. The, the answer to persistent pl- prayer is a blessing. But don't deprive yourself of the blessing of persistent prayer. That there is something that happens in fervent, persistent prayer. There is a change. There, there is something that, that is drawn out of us, that is fixed in us. That whole will of God thing with our will... Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So the Apostle Paul apparently had gotten a glimpse of heaven, had seen something that no mouth should ever speak about, and the Lord sees it fit to, to temper that. With humility. How does he humble the Apostle Paul? By sending this sword in the flesh. And this is the Apostle Paul, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. That's persistence. Three times. I didn't ask. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's an experience that came upon the Apostle Paul's heart. As a result of persistence in prayer. Even though he didn't get what he was praying for. And that was the blessing. Do you see? The greater blessing was not that the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh was removed. The greater blessing was that Paul got a deeper sense of who God was. Paul got to see God work through his weakness. Paul experienced a nearness with God, a love of God, a a connection and an affection with God that overpassed and overruled the persecution, the hardships, the insults, the calamities. Something happened in that prayer closet that only happened by persistent prayer. Do you see that? This should encourage you. This should encourage you when you step into your prayer closet this week and you pray for the lives of those you love. And, and pray with faith that things will change. But, but understand that there's another blessing attached to that. That the blessing is not just in the outcome, but it's in the experience. It's in what you're living with the Lord in that closet. And that comes about through fervent, persistent prayer. 
Last phrase, verse 14 and 16, says, Let them pray over him. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So prayer lesson number three, this is the title of the sermon, Pray Because Others Depend on it. Not only does your, do your prayers change things, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ who depend on you praying for things to change. What would have happened if Elijah would not have prayed for rain? You thought about that? If, if he would not have prayed for rain, would God have allowed the drought to continue indefinitely? I don't know. Or what about in 1 Kings 19, that Baal episode? If, if, if Elijah would not have prayed for God to show himself to be the true God, would that have happened? I don't know. But he prayed. And guess what happened to the people of Israel? There was a partial restoration after Ahab, Yehu, as anointed king. And guess what he does? He destroys all the altars of Baal. So, so something good comes out of his prayer. Listen to the Apostle Paul again in Philippians 1, 12 through 20. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of them, my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experience in Asia. We were so utterly burdened by our strength that we despaired of life itself. I argue and I will continue arguing that this is suicidal language. They're so in despair that they want their lives to end. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let me, let me share a personal testimony of of. Pray because others depend on it. Next week we will give a, a um, recap on the Rancho trip and just kind of uh, you know give you details of what the trip was. And it was just an, an, an incredible time. It was an incredible time for me on a personal level. Um, I just had an opportunity to teach and preach. And I've not told this to the team, so no one knows this but my wife. Um, but it was a very difficult time for me, extremely difficult time for me. The moment I landed in Mexico, or drove in Mexico, um, I was inexplicably consumed by fear. I can't tell you why or how. I don't know. I mean, I do, but it just came upon me. First night there, I had a really weird dream. Really weird dream. It scared the snot out of me. It, 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 it was a dream that... that 
threatened me with, with cancer. It was just a bizarre dream. And I woke up afraid. Just afraid. The next day, I had another weird dream. And, and this one was immoral. Just wrong. And, and I, I, was being, I was being made afraid. My weaknesses and limitations were being brought before me. So, Ronald, you're going to die. And Ronald, you can destroy your life and your ministry and your family. That's what's happening through my mind. Tuesday night, we get word that something really scary happens uh, in Mexico. Uh, we are about uh, eight miles from Ciudad Juarez, by the way. Uh, so if you know anything about Ciudad Juarez, um, you know that it's, it's, it's not a, a walk in the park um, because there's no park to walk through um, because drug cartels and wars and all that type of stuff. So it's a scary place to go to. And um, I'm having these weird dreams. Um, I'm having conversations with, with people. All the while, you're praying for me. You know how I know that? Because you're telling me. You're texting me. You're emailing me. Me, not the team, me. You don't know this. You have no clue what I'm going through. Thursday, I wake up. I was teaching all through the week. And I canceled my Thursday class because I'm just deathly afraid. I wasn't afraid that a drug cartel member was going to come and shoot me in front of everyone while I was preaching. That, that fear was in the back of my mind, but, but that was not what I was afraid of. I was just overwhelmed by fear. I took a nap Thursday afternoon, and I, it was a hard nap because I was more afraid. Um, one of the team members came up to me, um, and she said, um, Ronald, I feel that you're burdened. Can I pray for you? And I said, yeah. And she said, what would you like me to pray for? And I said, pray for, for boldness, for strength. Miguel Ferreira comes to me and says, says, pastor. Um, <laughs> and um, he said, can I pray for you? And, and, and that, that afternoon, something incredible happened. I woke up from my nap and I was, I said, let me go pray around the property. Just, just pray. Um, and while I was taking a nap, um, the Lord led my heart to um, the story of Elisha. And Elijah is in a house with a servant and he has been receiving messages from the Lord about what the enemies of Israel, of when they're going to come attack the people of Israel. So Elisha is getting these messages from the Lord, and so he tells everyone, hey, we've got to move camp because the, these bad guys are going to come in and attack us tomorrow. And so the guys show up tomorrow, and guess what? The people of Israel aren't there. Why? Because they're getting these messages from Elisha. Well, the king, the bad king, finds out about this. And he's like, I know what we need to do. We need to go kill Elisha, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's got a, a bug in there. He's, he's somehow hearing from the Lord and he knows w- w- what we're going to do. So how do we solve this? We kill him. Well, the king, evil king sends out his army. They surround Elisha's house. His servant comes out of the house and looks around and there's an army of people with their weapons geared towards them. The servant comes in and says, Elisha, we have to get out of here. The, the army has encamped around us. 
And um, Elisha, without missing a beat, he prays. And he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, would you open, your, open my servant's eyes? The servant's eyes are open. He steps outside and he sees another army. He sees an army of fire, of chariots, of angelic beings surrounding the little tiny army of the king. Elijah wasn't worried because Elijah could see. Elijah could see the power of God. Well, that Thursday, the Lord leads me to that passage. I'm reading through that passage. I'm praying through that passage. And you're praying for me. You're interceding on my behalf. What happened was a direct result of your intercession for me and us. I walk to one of the corners. And in pops in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And as I'm reciting that psalm, it, it rained that night. My, my gaze is drawn up to the heavens. And, and I, see, I, see, I see that storm cloud just, just moving like storm clouds move, you know? Just doing its storm cloud thing. And... It was the most palpable expression, experience of God's nearness in my life. I didn't didn't see him in that cloud, but he revealed himself to me. He showed me his presence. I, I went to the other corner, another psalm pops in, there's a cloud doing kind of the same thing. I go to another corner and 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 as I'm praying, strength, Eric, you can you can come up, dude. As I'm praying, more and more strength is just filling me. And we had an incredible time. We had uh, that Thursday, um, one of the cartels did something else. They employed a very graphic fear tactic to prevent stuff from happening. And the Lord opened up the storehouses of his blessings. And we had 150 adults show up. We had, we had like 300 people there. Um, I preached the gospel. Um, and, and it was just an incredible time. So, so, so why should you intercede for others? Why, why should you today go to your prayer closet and intercede for others? Because it matters. Because you moved heaven on my sake, for my sake. That's what you did. And that's what you can do. Let me finish with a quick quote. Charles Spurgeon said, intercessory prayer is an act of communion with God for Jesus pleads for the sons of men. It is a part of his priestly office to make intercession for his people. He hath ascended up on high to do this, exercises this office continually within the veil. When we pray for our fellow sinners, we are in sympathy with our divine savior who made intercession for the transgressors. Such prayers are often of unspeakable value to those for whom they are offered. They were for me. Many of us trace our conversion, if we go to the root of it, to the prayers of certain godly persons. In innumerable instances, the prayers of parents have availed to bring young people to Christ. Many more will have to bless God for praying teachers, praying friends, praying pastors. 
Obscure persons confined to their beds are often the means of saving hundreds by their continual pleadings with God. The book of remembrance will reveal the value of these hidden ones of whom so little is thought by the mass of Christians. As the body is knit together by bands and sinews and interlacing nerves and veins, so is the whole body of Christ converted into a living unity by mutual prayers. We were prayed for. Now in turn, we pray for others. Not only for the conversion of sinners, but for welfare, preservation, growth, comfort, and usefulness of saints are abundantly promoted by the prayers of their brethren. Hence, apostolic men cried, brethren, pray for us. He who has the personification of love said, pray for one another that ye may be healed. And our great Lord and head ended his earthly career by a matchless prayer for those whom the Father had given him. Intercessory prayer is a benefit to the man who exercises it and often a better channel of comfort than any means of grace. So quick application and we're done. You may be a person in this room who you consider yourself to not having a pronounced gift for the benefit of the body. Maybe you're not a teacher. Maybe you're not an elder. Maybe you don't have a gift of administration. Maybe you look upon yourself and you say, I can't really do anything. I can't really contribute to the life of this church. I'm no good. There is never a moment in your life as a Christian when you are more filled with power than when you pray. There is never a moment in your life as a Christian that you can do more for the kingdom of God than when you pray. There is nothing greater of, nothing of greater spiritual and eternal value, importance, weight, and significance than your prayers. There is no room. There is not a... a, a your prayers matter. You can join in the ushering of the kingdom of God in power by praying. You could do something of significance by praying. Maybe you're in a less than ideal stage of life, right? Maybe you're single, young people. Maybe you're an older person. Maybe you're moms with children, with young kids. And you wonder, how can you fit into the life of a church? How can you contribute? So young people... You want to change the world? You want to do something of eternal significance and value? Pray. Pray. Give yourself over to prayer for yourself and for others. Older saints, y'all, y'all like having parties around here. It's this weekend. Where, where, where'd you go, Farrell? To, to Maui? Where was it? How to... I've, I've, known, I've known senior adult ministries that characterize themselves, I'm not saying this about you guys, but I've known senior adult ministries that characterize themselves by being places of entertainment. That's not your problem, but pursue intercession for the body. Single people, maybe you look upon others in the church that have married and have kids and, and you, you think of yourself as a lesser Christian. You are a powerful, powerful Christian when you pray. Mamas with little children, you you take the brunt of years of kids throwing food on you and and just trying to figure out how in the world can I even have a house that seems livable to the external eye. Maybe maybe you, 
Maybe you don't see value in you because you can't do anything for the kingdom. Yes, you can. You can intercede. And so I wanted to end this morning by doing just that, by interceding. So I'm going to ask the elders to come up and um, I'm going to ask the prayer team as well to come up. So if you fit into one of those categories, anyone in the extended leadership team to come up to the steps over here. And I'm going to ask you, church, to bring your needs to Christ through the intercession of these folks. James makes it clear that there's a direct connection between healing being given and the prayer of an elder praying for that healing to occur. And so, if you need prayer for healing, come and be prayed by one of these men. If you're in another category of life, where you're struggling with temptation, with sin, you're being afflicted, you've lost your job, there's a relationship in your life that's been destroyed. It's even past repair. But you're still being affected by that relationship. Whatever it may be, bring your needs to Christ through the intercession of these folks. So I'm going to ask you to bow with me and pray with me. And as we're praying, just come. Come and be prayed for. Let's pray. Father, we have no hope that anything we say should be heard by you in heaven. But we have assurance, O Lord, that it will be through Christ. Lord, there are countless of life experiences and situations that are past the limit of strength, past the limit of knowing what to do, past the limit of, Lord, giving up is the only option that many here may be thinking or contemplating, Father. And so we come, Father, asking for your power and your work in us. Lord, that you would change the context of the lives before you. Lord, that you would take these prayers and you would hear them, O Lord, and you would answer them. Give us faith, O Lord, as we walk into our prayer closets to pray boldly with faith, knowing that we are heard by the great God in heaven. 